Section 8 of Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Petrie's Reminiscences of Early Queensland, Part 1, Chapter 8. In contrast to white people, the Aborigines wore red when mourning for the dead. Black being their natural colour, it would not, of course, express anything as it does with us. Red was put on all over the body, even the face. And then for deep mourning, for instance, if the deceased were a brother or sister, splashes of white clay relieved the monotony here and there. It was only the old people who troubled to mourn thus, however, and the old gins, in addition, wore feathers coloured red stuck in little bunches here and there in the hair with beeswax. The beeswax, which was carried about in dillies, would be warmed and put on the feathers, then quickly, ere it hardened, the little bunches would be stuck in the hair, the women helping one another. The close friends and relatives would remain so adorned for a month or two, but other old people putting on mourning would discard it again in a few days' time. The red colouring used for mourning was not the same as that used for reddening noses. They were both got from stones, but the latter was more uncommon, and the Torbal tribe could only obtain it by barter with inland blacks. In both cases, two stones were rubbed together, and the powder coming from them just rubbed into the skin. But the mourning colour was a dull red, while the other was beautifully bright and glossy. Red colouring was called coochie, which, however, was the name given to any paint. When putting on white clay, bander, the natives would wet a piece well with their tongue, and so plaster it on. The yellow colouring, or pugan palum, used at other times, never for mourning, was obtained from a toadstool, Polysacum oliviceum, which grew, strange to say, always beside a big ant's nest. My father says to his knowledge, they never grew anywhere else. They were big and round, these toadstools, and were full of a yellow powder which the blacks rubbed dry into their skins. White toadstools of the same shape are common enough. For a woman about to become a wife, there was no painting up of the body, neither was there any particular ceremony or rejoicing of any kind. The Aborigines, however, were most strict and particular with regard to their marriage laws. Indeed, they would not dream of allowing things we do. For instance, a man might not even marry any of his former wife's relations, and those we call cousins and second cousins were quite out of the question. Marriages were generally arranged, without the contracting parties having any say whatever in the matter, and a man would often so get a wife from a tribe other than his own, though this wasn't necessary. At corroborees, the different tribes exchanged their goods, such as shields, spears, nets, etc., and often they made use of the same occasion to give and take wives. It was always a correct thing, indeed a general rule, 
for a tall one of one tribe to give his daughter to the son of a great man of another and then the son's father gave his daughter back for the other's son or else they exchanged sisters or perhaps in the corroboree there would be a man who danced and joked especially well this man would take the fancy of a tall one in an opposite tribe and so he would generously present the capable young fellow with his daughter or if he had none his sister or next relation then the young man who had gained such a prize would give back his sister to the old man's son and so on for it was always give and take if there was a widower in the camp and the others thought him deserving of a wife or if there was a man unmarried and deserving the blacks would consult together to choose a wife for him without his knowledge then if all relations agreed the gin would be told by her friends who was to be her husband and the man would be told in the same way whom he had to take for his wife in spite of all this arranging two young people would sometimes make use of their own fancy and run away together there was such a thing as that inconvenient passion called love amongst the aborigines i suppose these two young unfortunates will be followed and brought back after a time and straightway a fight was arranged between their respective tribes if his friends should win he was allowed to keep her but should her party have the better of it then oh injustice she was beaten and cut about most frightfully almost killed and the pair were separated she being sent back to her parents woman poor woman is there no justice for you anywhere sometimes when these exchanges were being made a little girl a mere baby of five or six years might be given to a man of thirty or forty however she would stay with her parents until she was about fourteen years old then one day a hut would be made and a fire built in it and the blackfellow would go alone into the hut and sit beside the fire the mother and father would bring the girl to him leave her alongside then walk away without saying a word ever afterwards the mother must shun her son-in-law and if she saw him she covered her face she however might speak to her daughter a mother-in-law was called bugui and she always avoided her son-in-law thus even with the blacks you see a son and mother-in-law were not supposed to hit it indeed with them it was a law that there should be no communication whatever between the two according to some people this law with us would save trouble different tribes would be related to one another all over the place by these intermarriages and father always found some woman from another tribe in every fresh one he came across the woman belonged to her husband's tribe then and children were always spoken of as their father's son or daughter not their mother's and if a man died and left a wife and a family his brother was supposed to take the widow if there was no brother however then the next male relation of the deceased was responsible failing any relation the widow was given to a man the tribe thought should have a wife or 
Perhaps if she and some man had a fancy for one another, and the friends did not object, their marriage was allowed. A great man, or Toan, might have two or three or even four wives. In such a case he would take one out hunting when he went, leaving perhaps two to seek for roots and prepare them against his return. Then next day a different one would accompany him, and so on. These wives all lived happily enough together. The poor savages knew no greater happiness, apparently, than to serve their lord and master. They were useful in carrying the burdens from one place to another. A woman, because she was a woman, always carried the heaviest load. A man took his tomahawk, his spear and waddy, and that sort of thing. A woman humped along the weighty kangaroo and possum-skin coverings, the dillies with eatables, and sometimes also a heavy little piece of goods in the form of a child. At times, too, she would carry tea-tree bark on her back for the humpies. Whatever and anon, as they travelled along, the men enjoyed themselves hunting and looking for sugar-bags, native bees' nests, etc. Sometimes old men, never young ones, would carry puppies too young to walk, but it was mostly women who did this also. Aborigines were awful fond of their dogs. They were the only pets they had. They would never by any chance kill a puppy, but would keep every one, and this no doubt accounted for the poor condition of these followers. Father says that even in old days they were a mangy-looking lot. Probably they did not get sufficient food, but had to live off the scraps and bones thrown to them. However, a gin would nurse a puppy just as carefully as any baby. All dogs would sleep with their owners, and they would drink from the same vessel. Children, in spite of their parents' fondness for them, if they dared ill-use a dog, would call down torrents of abuse upon their little black selves, and they would be smacked soundly. Dogs will be taught to hunt. They were always native dogs in the old times, but those of the white man soon got amongst them. And my father knew one black fellow who carried a domestic cat about with him. The Aborigines used always to declare that the billing, what we know as the small house bat, made all their menfolk, and the woman can, night hawk, made the woman. They did not eat either of these, but might catch and kill them. If the men got hold of a woman can, they would bring it into the camp, and holding it up, would chaff the women about it. They also chased the fair sex all over the place with this hawk, and with it plagued the life out of them in every conceivable way. For instance, they rolled it up in bark as though it were a dead body ready for burial, and putting it over their shoulder, strutted about so. But then, supposing the women got hold of a billing, their turn came and the men were laughed at and taunted and chased. This kind of thing would generally start with jokes and yells and screams of laughter, but sometimes it ended pretty seriously in big fights and squabbles. Great cuts and gashes would then be the result of the women fighting just as viciously as the men. 
a bird, the piping shrike thrush, Coliwichinka harmonicolatum, which the blacks christened Mirum, was always watched when it came near a camp, and it was spoken to and asked questions about certain things. The blacks noticed whether it called out in reply or not, and they took warning and acted accordingly. If the bird was silent, all was well. Supposing, however, in spite of its silence, something went wrong after all, then instead of losing faith in the bird, they blamed themselves for not having asked it the correct question. On one occasion, when my father returned from the Turon diggings in 1851, he showed the blacks some gold dust, and they informed him they knew where there was lots of it. They took him to Sanford to a creek in the scrub there, and sure enough there was plenty yellow showing, but the white boy saw at once it was only mica. However, they camped for the night there in the scrub. Sampford was all wild bush then. As the darkness was descending, a bird, a mirum, came and settled on a branch above their heads and called out. An old black fellow got up and spoke to it, asking if there were any strange blacks in the neighbourhood. The bird did not answer, but it flew away, so the natives felt safe. However, later on, a sound like something heavy hitting against a hollow tree broke the stillness. The sound was rather peculiar. To this day, my father says he can hear it in fancy in the quietude of the scrub. He suggested that it was a tree falling, but his dark companions would not hear of this and began to lament and blame themselves that they had not spoken properly to the Mirum. It certainly would have answered, if they only had asked the right question. They said the sound was a strange black fellow knocking, and though it did not occur again, nothing quieted them, and one man sat up all night watching. All to no purpose, though, for nothing happened. It was on the way back to Brisbane from this trip next day that the blacks showed father the kippering at Samford. If an Aboriginal dreamt anything special at any time, he would always repeat the dream to his companions, and they would take it seriously. A dream was called Payaban, and during one a man would often see a person who had died and imagine that he was told to do this or do that probably kill someone. Also, if he saw anything dreadful in his dream, he became exceedingly afraid and would be convinced that the awful things he saw were really to happen. Again, if the moon or sun became eclipsed, it was a sure sign to the natives of the death of someone. Lightning, too, frightened them, and they always hid their spears and tomahawks during a storm. Spears, when not in use, were left standing upright against the doorway of a hut, and Father says that as a storm came up, he would see the natives taking these and their tomahawk and laying them down on the ground under tufts of grass. Later on, when they had learnt the white man's habit of smoking, they always took their pipes from their mouths when a storm was raging. The Aborigines had peculiar habits with regard to illnesses. 
the kundri the crystal stone before spoken of was held to be the cause of pretty well everything in that way a great man possessing one of these stones was always to the fore at corroborees he would come forward and wetting his breast with his hand would shake himself and then with a noise like a frog or a crow would pull forth the string with stone attached from his mouth amidst a great cry and wonder from the onlookers father has seen one of these men kneeling and sucking a sick man's body on the path where the pain was then rising after a time pulled the country from his mouth saying he had sucked it from the sufferer's body there is said to be power in belief and it would seem so for the sick man believing his enemy's stone was removed would feel better and probably recover the toe one would be cute enough not to do this if he thought the case was hopeless another idea was when anyone was ill to tie possum string round to the invalid's ankles and wrists father has seen a man far gone in consumption with hair tied on thus and also round and round his body an old gin sitting about a yard off had hold of the end of the body string and with both hands she dipped it into some water she had ready in a peaky pot made from bark or the flower leaf of the palm and from the water to her mouth constantly she did this and so urgently that her gums bled freely with the rubbing and the water became thick with blood she expectorated into it the sick man seeing this believed that the woman had taken bad blood from his body it was a habit to let out blood in cases of swelling and bruises the natives cured headaches in the following fashion two big flat stones were procured these were made very hot and then one will be placed on the ground with an opossum rug over it on this the patient would lay his head and the other stone would be put on top of that again with another piece of rug in between to prevent burning there the man would lie grinning for some time until the great heat took the headache away two other cures they had for headaches one was to dive under water and stop there as long as possible and the other was a very hard knock on the head with a body the latter my father has given them many a time at their request often for pains such as toothache the blacks would burn with a fire stick for instance on the cheek their idea must have been that one pain would cure another flesh wounds would be washed and scraped with a stick till they ceased to bleed then as mentioned fine charcoal powder or ashes will be put on them sometimes even only ordinary dirt it was wonderful how splendidly they healed up under this treatment the blacks were always very good to their sick but they had their own ideas of kindness if at any time a man became unconscious to make him recover his ears would be banged and shouted into so long as he could hear he was thought to be better when my father first came to north pine pockmarks were very strong on some of the old men 
they explained to him how the sickness had come amongst them long before the time of the white people killing off numbers of their comrades pockmarks they called nurem nurem the same name as is given to any wart from this nurem nurem creek near kabulcha gets its name the scourge itself was bugram and the latter was what the instrument similar to the bobok clan was called there was probably some connection in that they were both awe-inspiring in their way the bugaram which the women never saw was no common everyday instrument and was looked on with wonder while smallpox was something to be spoken of in a whisper and with bated breath after the advent of the whites consumption took hold of the race and where before natives lived to a good old age one would hardly see any old people the remarkable freedom from sickness seemed to disappear the natives were great believers in the curative properties of the dugong father has seen sick blacks unable to walk apparently in consumption carried carefully to the mouth of the brisbane river and there put into canoes and taken across to fisherman's island to where the dugongs were being caught there they would live for some time on the flesh of the dugong and the oil would be rubbed all over their bodies and in the end they would return quite strong and well in the early days of brisbane my father mentioned how he had seen this for himself to dr hobbs who was greatly interested and afterwards recommended the use of dugong oil as a remedy similar to cod liver oil this is how it came to be first used medicinally in queensland if all the old aboriginals of brisbane could come to life again they would not recognize their country the country we have stolen from them if they went hunting in the forests where would be their spoil where indeed would they find the forests to hunt in or how they must have loved those forests their forests and could they return now their cry would surely be as despairing as that of Inoi, as tennyson paints her lamenting the destruction of quote, my tallest pines my tall dark pines that plumed the craggy ledge unquote. never never more would she see quote, the morning mist sweep through them unquote. and never more shall one of australia's dark children see brisbane as god made it quote, god made the country man made the town unquote. as the black hunted careless and free in those days long gone little dreamed he of what his brother white would do little dreamed there was a brother white the waters even have changed since those times dugong used to be very plentiful then when there was nothing much in the way of disturbances the blacks would catch them at fisherman's island at st helena at a place near dunwich they called gumpy at bribey passage and at the mouth of the pine river end of part 1 chapter 8